Before we get started with this episode of Walking with Dante, let me just say that this podcast has gone on for three years, more than three years. In fact, I never intended this podcast to overtake my life, but it has. I'd like to ask for a little help. I have a great deal of costs associated with this podcast, including fees to join scholarly journals to get library access, including hosting fees, streaming fees. I have to buy the copyrights to the music, the sound effects, and I have to put the thing up and let it live somewhere. So I have to pay for those services too. All of that has eaten into the budget, and I have turned down sponsors in favor of asking for your help. So before we get started, let me just tell you that there is a PayPal link both in the show player itself and in the notes to this podcast. If you would like to donate to this podcast and support it, that would be terrific. I'd say a dollar, a euro, a Canadian dollar per episode. That'd be fantastic. Half a dollar, 50 cents. Um, you know, half a quid uh, for an episode. That's also pretty fantastic, too, if you have enjoyed the journey. Even if you don't, I'm still going to continue on this passion project. I'm simply asking for a little help for something that I had no intention of overwhelming my life onto the episode. Hey there, I'm Marcus Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that has walked right to the gate of purgatory itself in Canto 9 of Dante's Purgatorio, the second canticle of his masterwork comedy. Of course, Inferno behind us, Purgatorio with us, and Paradiso lying far ahead of us. We're going to read through the entire Canto 9 in this episode. If you remember, I believe that Purgatorio is more complicated than Inferno, and so you should get the lay of the land, you should get a vision of the landscape before we take it apart and look at it in pieces. This is a particularly difficult Canto, and Dante will even let us know that it's supposed to be difficult. This is my English translation. It is from the medieval Florentine. You cannot yet find it on my website, markscarborough.com, because I want you just to listen to it. When we get to the individual passages, I will break it up and put it on my website. I should also say right here before we get started that I retranslate this when we go into the individual episodes that break the canto apart into individual tercets. I do that so that I get a more accurate translation. This is a rough running early translation. And then as I study it and work on it, I rethink the translation. I hone it. I change it slightly. So this will never actually appear in this current form on my website because it's still a bit rough at the edges. You'll hear me stumble a bit. That's okay. I'll get it right when we get, I hope, I'll get it right when we get to the individual parts of Canto 9. Let's just do it. The concubine of old Tithonus was glowing white off the balcony of the east, just as she did when she came straight from her lover's arms with jewels glittering on her forehead. These were arranged in the form of the cold-blooded animal that strikes people with its tail. Night had made it up some steps from where we were, so that the wings of the third were already drooping when I, 
who still had something from Adam about me, lay down to sleep in the grass there where all five of us were seated. At that hour, near the first light of morning, when the swallow begins her matins, perhaps remembering her sorrows from ages ago, and when our mind, now a pilgrim from our flesh and less pressed by our thoughts, is more prophetic in its visions, I seem to see an eagle in my dream, one hovering in the sky with golden feathers, with its wings open, ready to swoop. It seemed I was in the same spot where Ganymede abandoned his own people when he was carried up to the Supreme Council. And I thought, maybe it's mere habit that makes it strike with its talons at that place, disdaining to pick any up from anywhere else. Then it seemed to me that after it wheeled about a bit, it shot down as terrible as lightning and ravaged me up to the sphere of fire. It seemed as if both it and I were ignited. The imagined burning was so intense that my sleep gave way to wakefulness. In no different way did Achilles jump up, straining his surprised eyes in a wide circle and not knowing where he was when his mother carried him asleep in her arms from Charon to Skyros, from which point the Greeks would later take him away. In just this way, I woke up with the semblance of sleep all gone from me. I was pale with terror, like a guy who's so afraid that he can't move. Beside me was no one else but my comforter and the sun was already more than two hours up over the horizon. My face was turned toward the sea. Don't be afraid, said my lord. Be courageous, for all is going well with you. Don't hold back. Rally all the strength you've got. Now you have come at last to purgatory. There you can see the rock wall that encircles it, and you can see the entrance where it seems to gap open. A little while ago, in the early light of dawn's day, when your spirit was still asleep in you and you were lying on the flowers that adorn that place down there, a lady came and said, I am Lucy. Permit me to gather up this one who sleeps so that I can get him quickly on his way again. Sordelo and the other noble souls stayed put. She picked you up, and when it had become day, she went on up the mountain, and I followed in her steps. She set you down here, but first her gorgeous eyes showed me that entrance which is standing open. That's when both she and sleep left you. As a man who has been mired in doubt and finds fear replaced by confidence when he finally discovers the truth, I found myself changed. And when my guide saw that I was without fear, he started moving up the path, and I came along right behind him as we made for the heights. Reader, you'll truly see how I'm raising the bar of my material. Don't marvel if I have to shore it up with more art. We pressed on until we got to the spot where at first it had seemed a gap in the rocks or maybe a breach in a wall. I now saw a door with three steps that led up to it, each one a different color. The keeper of the gate hadn't yet uttered a word. As my eyes began to make him out more clearly, I saw that he was seated on the top step. So bright was his face that I couldn't bear to look at it. He had an unsheathed sword in his hand. It reflected his bright rays back to us, so much so that I had to turn away from him in vain. Say whatever you must from where you are. 
What is it you want? He began. Where is your escort? Take care that your coming here doesn't lead to your grief. A lady from heaven, my master replied to him, who is well acquainted with such things just now said to us, go on that way, just ahead is the gate. And may she hasten your steps for your own good, continued the keeper of the gate. Come forward then to these stairs of ours. We then moved on toward them. The first step was made out of white marble, so pure and polished that I could see myself in it very much as I appeared. The second was darker than deep purple, sort of like an uncut stone, yet somehow burned, too, with cracks along its length and breadth. The third, which set its massive weight at the top, looked to me like porphyry, a flame with red, like blood that spills out of an open vein. Both of the feet of the angel of God were planted on this threshold. He seemed to be resting on uncut diamonds. My good leader pulled me up these three steps. I was quite happy about that. Virgil said, call out to him in all humility to put aside the door's bolt. With much devotion, I abased myself at his holy feet. After striking my chest three times, I called out for mercy and asked to be led inside. The angel traced seven peas on my forehead with the tip of his sword and said, once you're inside, make sure you wash yourself from these wounds. Ashes or dirt when it is dug up dry would be the color of his robes. Out from under them, he took out two keys, one of gold and one of silver. First with the white and then with the yellow, he touched the door so that I got what I wanted. Whenever one of these keys fails so it doesn't turn in the lock, he said to us, the door won't open. One is more precious, but the other needs a lot more art and understanding before it'll do the trick, because it's only this one that finally unties the knot. I got these from Peter. He told me to err in favor of opening rather than maintaining the lock, if only a person should fall down before my feet. Then he pushed open one part of the holy door and said, Enter, but I must warn you that anyone who looks back must go back outside. The way sacred pins of the holy door turned in their sockets, which were heavy and sounded out with lots of metallic noise, in just that way, the tapian rock didn't scream so loud, nor was so hard as when the good metalus was drawn off and it was all left bare. And I turned to pay attention to a new sound. It seemed to me I heard Te Deum Laudamus in a polyphony of voices with a sweet tonality. It gave me the same sort of impression that I have when I hear singers who are accompanied by an organ. That is, when some words are clear and others are lost. Well, there it is. The gate of purgatory. So many questions. Remember I told you that we were leaving the classical landscape? Well, there's a lot of classicism here. There's Ganymede and Titanus. <laughs> I was leading you down a primrose path, but for a purpose, as we will discuss when we get there, there's a lot of classical imagery in this canto, a ton of it, and we have to talk through that. We have to talk through all those colors and the allegory of the steps. Why is it white, purple, red? Why those colors in a row? We want to talk about liturgical colors. 
colors, if we want to talk about sacred uh, colorography, I don't know the right word for it, the sacred use of colors in the text. We want to talk about the angel and this letter P that he carves in the pilgrim's forehead with the tip of his sword. There's so much going on here, and it ending with this idea that, you know, you hear it, and some of it you get, some words you hear, and others are lost. Some of it you don't get. It's drowned out by the music, which may be the fundamental way this canto works. The allegory and symbolism is so thick that some of the words are heard and some of them are lost inside a giant structure of symbolism. What else could the gate of purgatory be but this? This is going to be a challenging canto, but we are up for it. We will start it in the next episode of Walking with Dante. To get there, subscribe to this podcast, like it, rate it. If you wouldn't mind dropping a comment about it, even nice podcasts, that would do wonders no matter in what platform and in what language you write it. So wherever you are in the globe, doing that helps out in the work of this podcast. Thanks for getting all the way to Canto 9 of Purgatorio with me. I can't wait to get through this lost and found canto with the words that escape us and find us all throughout it. And it's wild, thick, classical imagery. Oh, man, so much ahead. I'm Mark Scarborough. Let's get there fast. <laughs>